Okay, um, if you would turn with me to Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5. We are right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the third in a series of uh, messages about the law. Now, I, I wish I had planned that, um, and if I had, I'd have some cool, like, the law, part one, the law, part two, you know, um, but it actually has worked out in a, in a really interesting way. Um, so the first message was about Christ's fulfillment of the law. How does Christ fulfill the law? And what does that mean for his people? And so we discussed that at length. And we discussed Christ's fulfillment of the law, not dismissing our, our call to do the law, but actually amplifying our call to do the law. And, and almost immediately, I started getting questions. Um, questions about the law and what laws do I do and how do I, how do, I do those laws? And, um, and so then we just kept reading and the scripture actually answered those questions. Christ actually answers these questions. Um, And so uh, the answer was, well, you do it all. (laughs) You do do the whole law, right? Christ says, not one jot, not one yoda is is left behind. The, The doing of the law by Christ's people is comprehensive. Um, And then we looked at a bunch of passages in the New Testament that talk about how we do the law, even the parts that we just assumed we don't do, like sacrifice and circumcision. And, uh, and so we, you know, I was like, whoa, that, that, you know, that was this is a good message, Ben. This is, it made sense, I'm sure. Hope everybody's feeling edified. And as soon as I step down and, and we're done, uh, I had people coming up to me and saying, whoa, okay, okay, I get it. But what laws, Ben, do we do? Like, you kind of answered that question, but you kind of didn't answer that question. So, like, there's obviously, we're doing the laws differently on some level. Obviously, we're, we're, we're following the, the, the spirit and not the letter of the law. Obviously, we're following the substance and not the shadow of the law. So, like... What, what do we do differently now, and why do we do it differently, right? What laws do we ignore completely um, because, because we've been called to fulfill that aspect of the law in a different way? What continues and what discontinues? And I was like, okay, good question. Hopefully we'll get to the text somewhere, and it'll answer that question. And as it turns out, the next few verses answer that question. So, so I am encouraged because our community questions, our community journey through the Sermon on the Mount seems to be headed in the right direction because as we ask questions, Christ is queued up and ready to answer them. All right, that, that's encouraging to me because that means we're following his logic. So what we're going to do today is we're going to try and answer that question. Okay, we're going to try and answer what does Christ mean when he says, you've heard it said, and then he actually quotes the law of Moses. And then he says, 
But I say to you, right? What, what just happened there? And what does it mean that, that sometimes he's saying, yeah, yeah, it's been said this in the law, but, but you're to do even this. Or you're not even to do that, you're to do this instead, right? That dynamic we're going to explore in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So just to start the argument from the very beginning, um, Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law. So Jesus' claim is that he is the living, breathing, walking, speaking embodiment of the righteous requirements of the law. When Jesus says he fulfilled the law, it means that he fulfilled all the law and he fulfilled it perfectly. And that's good news to his people, right? Because one of the aspects of the law that he fulfills is the atoning work, right? So he carried the burdens of the people on his shoulders, right? And because of his spilt blood, offered up by by him, the high priest, we are able to stand before God confident, okay? So, So that's good news. And you might... You might be inclined to say, "Woo! Christ has done it, and it's a good thing, because I was doing a pretty bad job of it. And now that he's done it, I can relax. And as soon as he says he came to fulfill the law, he says, you may not relax the law. All right? He says, my fulfillment of the law is not, is not in order for you to relax. In fact, there's, it, it says bad things about you. If you relax the law. And so his people or just his disciples are just like, oh, okay, oh, okay, you, you fulfill the law, but, but I'm not supposed to relax because of that, so what am I supposed to do? And he says, you're supposed to do the law and teach others to do the same. And you can just see them thinking, all right, okay, all right, this, I'm, I'm tracking. Uh, so, so, so you're doing the law and, and you say, I need to do the law too, so... So if I really have this obligation to do law, I just need to, I just need to look around and figure out who I can, I can learn from, right? Like who, who among us are the best doers of the law, right? The best doers of the law, the ones who are doing the law all the time. Well, maybe it's the Pharisees, right? And the scribes, man, those people do the law. But immediately Jesus said, no, no. All right? Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the, fri- the scribes and Pharisees, or the, the fries and scarisees, which is what I was about to say. <laughs> uh, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you have no place in my kingdom. So he's looking at the people who are the best doers of the law in the land. They're the best keepers of the law in the land. And he said, not like that. All right? So Jesus here is keeping us on our toes. He's teaching us what he means when he calls us to do the law. Okay, I want to ask the question, why shouldn't we do the law like the Pharisees and scribes are doing the law? Why not? What they're doing is they're they're reading the law of Moses, which is to this point what I mean when I say the law. If you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, The law of Moses is a general term referring to the first five books of our Bible. And the law of Moses includes many laws. 
And the scribes and Pharisees took those laws very seriously. And they followed them to the letter. And Christ says, don't do that. And I want to know why not. Right? Wouldn't it seem pretty clear and obvious that you just got to do what it says to do? All right, so that's one of the questions we're going to be asking today. And the answer is that the law of Moses is like or similar to the law of Christ. But the law of Moses is not the law of Christ. Okay? All right, let me repeat that. The law of Moses is similar to or like the law of Christ, but the law of Moses is not the law of Christ. And in order to get what we need to be gotten done today, I I need to ask two questions about that. What is different? What is different about the law of Moses and and the law of Christ, and why is it different? Okay? What's changed? What's different, and why has it changed? Why is it different? All right. So that's the goal here. We're going to try and explore what Christ is doing when he says, don't be like the scribes and Pharisees, but do the law. All right, what does he mean? All right. I'm going to read a few excerpts from the next chapter, and we're going to start to get a taste of what Christ is saying. Okay? Listen to his words. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who has looked at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So Jesus is not merely clarifying the law here. In many ways, he's actually replacing the law. I mean, you can argue from some of these that he's just that he's just maybe interpreting or amplifying the law. But that last one, he says, no. He says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for the tooth. No, I say, you let someone slap you on the cheek and you offer the other cheek, right? So, so in many ways, he's replacing the law with his words. And, and I want to know, why would the law need to be replaced, right? It's God's word, right? So wh- why? Why would the law need to be replaced? All right, I want to turn to Matthew 19. We're going to skip ahead a bit. All right, turn to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, we're just going to start from verse 3. If you can, read with me. Follow along with me. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be up on the screen. Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read 
that he who created them from beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Why why did Moses say it was okay? Listen to Jesus' response. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, there it is again, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Okay. Okay. So Jesus functionally says, you want to know why the law of Moses permits you to divorce your wives? Because you're bad people. Because you're wicked people. And the law of Moses was written to keep you from being the most wicked versions of yourselves. You're a bad guy. And the law is keeping you from being a worse guy. you got a hard heart, Pharisees. That's why you're asking this question. That's why you're seeking your rights to divorce your wives. Okay, so. I think that what we're learning here, and we're going to look at other passages to see this, is that the law of Moses is a restraint against our wickedness. Okay, The law of Moses is a restraint against our wickedness that highlights our captivity to sin. All right? The law of Moses is a restraint against our wickedness that highlights our captivity to sin. All right, one more. I want to look at Galatians 3. Just keep going. It's in the middle of all the little books. General Electric Power Company. That's what I learned. (laughs) Galatians. All right, Galatians 3. Now, I'm not going to read the whole book or the whole chapter. I'm going to read a few notable excerpts. Okay. This is starting in verse 19. Why then the law? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Okay. The law was added because of transgressions. Now, if you keep reading... Paul explains, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned. Okay, held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Okay, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We were, when we were children, we were enslaved. Okay, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, 
born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, it's beautiful. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Okay, so let's step back and think about the word picture that Paul is painting here. There's this picture that before Christ, you are enslaved to sin. You can't help but sin. Sinning is what you do. You are a slave to it. It is your master. And so the law, it operates like prison bars, okay? Like a cage, like a guardian, keeping you from being as sinful as you could possibly be. The law is guarding you, right? Keeping you from being the most wicked version of yourself. The law of Moses operates like prison bars. It's a restraint against our wickedness that highlights our slavery to sin. And here's what I mean. As you're grabbing hold of those bars and shaking them and saying, I want out. And as those bars are teaching you exactly how, what your limitations are and, and, you're, and, you're, and you're butting your head against them and you're demanding to be free from this law, you're learning that what you really want is sin, right? The law is captivating you, right? It's, you are captured behind the prison bars of the law. It restrains your wickedness and it highlights your captivity, okay? But when Jesus declares victory over the grave, he frees his people, okay? And he adopts his people and he empowers his people. So Paul is looking at Christians and saying, you don't need to be behind those prison bars any longer. You are freed from your captivity to sin. You don't need a guardian anymore. You've been adopted and you've been empowered to do the righteous requirements of the law. And so that lock to your prison cage is open and you are free. Okay? You are free. This newfound freedom that Christ's followers enjoy has everything to do with the law of Moses because the law of Moses was written to a captive people. Does everyone follow me? The law of Moses was written to those who were still behind the prison bars. But Christ has unlocked our shackles and he has unlocked the prison and we are free. And that changes the way we think and read the law. All right? Okay. So when you look back in Matthew 5, and we're going to turn back to Matthew 5 now, when you look back at Christ's words, you see him teaching the law of Moses through the lens of freedom. All right? You're... You're hearing Christ teach the law through the lens of this freedom which he has secured for his people. All right, so turn back to Matthew 5. I'm going to choose just one of these examples that he walks through in the law to illustrate this. All right? But we will see that from verse 21, right? So... Christ gives this expectation that his people will do the law and then he forbids them from doing the law in the way that the Pharisees and scribes do the law. And everybody's asking questions at this point. Everybody's asking questions. And then he engages in this long discourse 
And he talks about murder and anger and reconciliation. And he talks about adultery and lust. And he talks about divorce and loyalty and faithfulness and oaths and vengeance. Right? He just, he walks through these major pillars of the law and he explains to his people what he means. Right? What do you... What do you mean do the law, but don't do it like the scribes and Pharisees? This is what we're doing here. And what we see is that sometimes Jesus clarifies the law. Sometimes he explains what the law means. Now, there are some laws in the law of Moses that don't get touched by anybody in the New Testament. They're just cited verbatim. Honor your father and mother. Right? Paul doesn't... Paul doesn't say, now, here's what that means, and here's how we do that. That's simple, right? That's, that doesn't even, even need to be interpreted, right? But then sometimes Jesus clarifies and explains the various aspects of this law, right? And sometimes he amplifies the law, like in the case of anger um, and, and murderous hearts, which we're going to see this next week. Um, but, that, but then sometimes he just... Just, just replaces it. Sometimes that, that's not for you anymore. This is for you now. All right? All right, let me show you this. Turn to verse 38. Verse 38. Verse 38. We're going to ask the question, how does Jesus choose what to keep and what to replace. All right, what, is, he, is he arbitrarily choosing to clarify some things, to amplify some things, and to just clean replace other things? Or is there some principle behind this? All right, verse, verse 38, hold up your Bibles when you're there, because I want you to read this with me. Great. Okay. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Do you see what happened here? He shifted from the justification for vengeance, the justification for penalty, which is what's detailed in the law. He shifts from that to an expectation of mercy. Right? He shifts radically. He says, you don't even need to be thinking along the terms of eye for eye anymore. That's not how it works for you, sons and daughters of God. Okay. So throughout the law of Moses, there's this righteous vision of mercy, all right? It's all, it's all throughout the law. Now, I don't mean just the laws. I mean from the beginning of Genesis through the end of Deuteronomy. There's this, this righteous vision of a people who would reciprocate the mercy of God, a people who would, who would love the sojourner, right? A people who would free the slave and care for the orphan and the widow, not because they're just just generally good people, but because this is how they relate to God. 
the God who saved them from slavery and and walked them carefully through the wilderness and delivered them into a promised land. There's this vision underlying the law that expects reciprocation. You have been shown mercy, so you be merciful. You were a sojourner, so give pity to the sojourner. There's this, there's this throughout, this righteous vision of mercy. A nation of freed slaves, a nation of sojourners saved by miraculous mercy who were called to reflect that mercy. And in its brightest moments in the Old Covenant, there's this hope that the, that the house of Israel was to be a shining beacon to the nations of mercy. Drawing the hopeless. Right? Okay. However, Israel immediately forgot the mercy of God. Israel immediately forgot the mercy of God and Israel grew violent and vengeful and corrupt. So, so this law, this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, this law was written to be prison bars for the vengeful, to restrain the violence of men and to restrain corrupt judgment of their leaders, right? So like, here's, here's what I mean. On two different levels, this law is prison bars, right? It is to keep the people as far as possible from being the most wicked version of themselves. On the one level, you know, if you, if, if you poke your, your neighbor's eye out, you know there's consequences, right? If, if, you, if you get into a bar fight and you bust a tooth of your buddy with your fist, you know that there's consequences here, right? So you think twice before swinging at that guy. You, you think twice before breaking out your knife and stabbing that guy because you know the law has been prison bars for you. If you trespass that, there's going to be judgment and it's going to be judgment uh, that reciprocates your violence. So all of a sudden, because these prison bars are there, you have violent and angry people second-guessing whether or not they should do all the things their heart wants to do. You see what I'm saying? Prison bars. Now, simultaneously, the most respected members of the community of Israel, the judges, were corrupt, right? And so, and you see this in Exodus and Deuteronomy, and you see this in Numbers. You see times when the judges of Israel are inclined to show pity to their favorite people, right? Somebody trespasses this law. Maybe they, maybe they, uh, Maybe they, maybe they get into a fight. Maybe they break their buddy's arm. Maybe they uh, stab their buddy in the, in, the, in the abdomen or something. Just, there's a lot of violence going on. Uh, if I, I, we were just reflecting last week on the books we're really excited about preaching and the books that we uh, are not excited about preaching. And I love the literary structure of the book of Judges. By far, far and away, easiest book in the Bible to preach. Far and away, it tells you exactly how it's structured. It tells you exactly what, it's me- what it means. But what it means is so bleak that I don't ever want to preach it. So Brett's on vacation, and I'm just going to go ahead and say this now. Brett has committed to teach the book of Judges. 
Anyways, the book of Judges is just an illustration of how violent the people are. And I can't even mention some of the ways that they're violent because they're, they're terrible. Okay, And sometimes this violence would unfold and the judges would see, oh, I don't want I, you know, I know he took this guy's eye. But I don't want, I don't want my buddy to lose his eye, so we're just going to show pity here. That's, that was biased and it was corrupt. And, and on the other level, sometimes these judges would be themselves vengeful and violent people. So we, they would say, you don't take my buddy's eye, kill him. Everybody get the stones, right? And this law operates like prison bars for the judges of Israel, right? Said, no, no, you can, you must enforce justice this way. You cannot go beyond this rule, right? Prison bars, all right? This law assumes that people are enslaved to sin. And this law assumes that they'll forget the mercy of God and it, and it assumes that they'll be violent and vengeful and corrupt. That's the subtext of eye for an eye. All right? But what if they weren't? Huh? What if the, what if the, what if the community of God's people weren't enslaved to sin? Right? What if they weren't corrupt and violent and vengeful? What then would their relationship be to the violent and the vengeful? What if they were free? What if the people of God were free and they remembered always the mercy of God? And what if by the power of the Spirit of God Himself they were empowered to reflect that mercy? What would their relationship look like to the violent nations of the world? Jesus looks at the prison bars of this law and says, no more. He says, no more. You've been freed from violence, from vengeance, and from corruption, and you've been empowered to fulfill the righteous reflection of God's mercy. So Jesus says, get these shackles off my brother. See what I mean? The law, the eye for an eye law, the tooth for a tooth law, those are shackles to those enslaved to sin. Jesus says, get those shackles off my brother. He's free. He's free. There is a righteous vision woven throughout the law of Moses, but the captivity of men constrains that righteous vision. So that the law of Moses becomes a restraint, prison bars, highlighting our captivity to sin. But the law of Christ is the righteous vision behind the law of Moses, freed from that restraint. Okay? The law of Christ is the righteous vision behind the law of Moses, freed from that restraint, freed from the prison bars. Christ strips away the restraint of the law and frees his people to fulfill the righteous vision behind the law, which is, by the way, why I think He replaces this law altogether. He says, you don't need to be, you don't need to be uh, bound by the prison bars threatening you if you choose to be violent towards your brother. You don't need that anymore. You are freed to fulfill the vision of mercy in the law of Moses. So you just forget eye for an eye. That's shackles and you don't need them anymore. Forget eye for an eye. Instead, you exhibit the mercy of God. 
And then he models it. And he models it himself. Being beaten and spit on, wearing a crown of thrones, Jesus models this mercy exhibited in the Old Testament. He models this righteous vision. You know how ironic it is that the Roman soldiers are mocking Jesus for calling himself a king? Do you know how ironic that is? Because he is the king of kings. And he turns his cheek. And he offered the, offered the other cheek. See what I mean? His people are empowered to exhibit God's mercy that way. That way. So back to our original question. Our original question was, how is the law of Moses similar but different from the law of Christ? What's different about it and why is it different? Now here's my answer. What's different about the law of Christ? Any aspect of the law of Moses that was written to restrain wickedness and to highlight captivity has no place among the freed sons of God. Right? Any aspect of the law of Moses that was written to restrain wickedness and to highlight captivity has no place among the freed sons of God. All right? So as we start to read through each one of these for instances, and as Christ begins to scan the law of Moses and highlight episodes of the law of Moses that may still or may not apply to his people, I think this is the rule that's guiding him. If it's there to restrain wickedness, if it's there to highlight captivity, it doesn't apply to my people because my people are free. Why is it different? Because when Christ's people are freed from captivity, they are liberated from the prison bars of the law of Moses. And they are empowered to fulfill the righteous vision of the law of Christ. When Christ's people are freed from captivity, when they're freed from their slavery to sin, Christ doesn't just leave them there, right? Christ carries their consequences. He carries the wrath of God on his shoulders and he, and he, and he dies on their behalf so they can stand before God free and clean But he doesn't leave them there. He sends his spirit to empower them to fulfill the righteous vision of the law also. All right? So when you're freed, he says, let's go. Okay. So a few questions and a few points of application. First, are you enslaved to sin? I didn't ask if you sin. If I asked if you sin, and I saw you shaking your head, we would immediately go to 1 John. If I asked you if you sinned, you should be saying yes, yes. It's a matter of how many times you've sinned in the last four hours. <laughs> um, I didn't ask that question. I said, are you enslaved to sin? And by the grace of 
God and by the mercy of God and by the revelation of God, I hope you know if you are enslaved to sin. Can't help but do it. You need to manufacture obstacles over and over again in every arena of your life just to keep you from doing it as intensely as you want to do it. Are you enslaved to sin? Okay, you need the law of Moses. You need those prison bars. You need somebody to tell you don't commit adultery. They're keeping you from being the worst vision of, version of yourself. And they're there to highlight your captivity to sin. And they're there to prepare you for a redeemer. If you believe yourself to be enslaved to sin this morning, don't leave without talking to somebody. Don't leave without talking to somebody. So I'll be here. There'll be others here. This is a perilous situation. However, if you're in Christ, if Christ has freed you from slavery, first, you have been set free from captivity to sin. All right, these are the application points, and really just pretty redundant because I'm repeating things that I've said now five times. But if you are in Christ, and, and I'm looking at the members here, members of this church have, have, have gone through conversations and we prayed together and, and the church has heard your testimony and, and, and there's a really good possibility that you didn't just slide through those processes enslaved to sin. So I'm talking to you. You have been set free from captivity to sin. That is your first point of application. If you want this text to change your life, if you want this sermon on the mount to change your life, that needs to be stuck in your pocket. If you want to get a tattoo that says, I have been set free from captivity to sin, I'm fine. I'm fine. This is why I'm, it it seems obvious, but this is why I'm putting this here. I think we, we, we fade into, or we, we relax into these modes that say, I'm going to sin. I'm, I'm going to sin on a regular basis. So there's a degree to which I should be uncomfortable with certain types of sin. But there's a lot of types of sin that, you know, everybody does. And because, you know, everybody does it, I should be okay doing it sometimes. It's fine. Okay, this is the creed of slaves. You see what I mean? That's the creed of slaves. There is no sin to which you're enslaved. If you're in Christ, all those chains have been broken. All those chains have been broken. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that, like, If you try hard and believe in yourself, tomorrow you'll never sin again. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying to the degree that you just take for granted that you're not ever going to really kick this. I'm just an angry person. 
My parents were the same way, so when I fly off the handle towards my kids, it's going to be okay. That's me. I'm talking about, I'm talking about my sin. When you find yourself saying, well, there are a lot of reasons why it's totally okay for me to continue in this sin. I, I want to call that a lie, but I'm close to calling it blasphemy. Because, because you do not question the efficacy of my Lord and Savior. Amen? He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Do you believe that? Because that's in the Bible. Okay? You are free. We need to live as free people. I love, my wife says this, says this to me all the time, usually when we're stressed. She says, I want to be the kind of people who laugh at the future. Right? Who laugh at trials. Because we're free. Because we're free and all that we have to look forward to is, an, is a coming inheritance in the kingdom. And life may be hard sometimes. But he has given us everything we need to do it well. Okay? Okay. That's, that's number one. I only have 14 more. I'm just kidding. People are like... Two, you have been empowered to walk righteously. Okay. I threw this in here because I think we still kind of think about the law of Christ like we think about the law of Moses. Like, what am I allowed to do? Right? Like, like how far can I go down this path? Like, what are my restrictions? Right? Categorically, your understanding of the law should shift from prison bars to righteous vision. From restraint to righteous vision. And as you're thinking about what you've been called to do as a Christ follower, if you find yourself referencing the prison bars and saying, no, it's okay, I haven't gone beyond these prison bars, you're thinking about the law as a, as, a, as a person held captive by sin, which you are not. We just covered that a second ago. You are empowered to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, Romans 8, 4. Look, don't... Don't underestimate the brilliant work of Jesus. Don't underestimate the brilliant work of Jesus. He laid down his life and he took your sins and he sent you the spirit that raised him from the dead. Your life is not merely a matter of what you don't do, right? You're not distinct from the world merely because of what you don't do, the world should feel uncomfortable when you walk in the room because you're doing the righteous vision of the law and that thing is making everybody feel weird. It's making everybody feel the captivity of their sin. 
And I don't, I don't just mean like uh, in the big ways that we talk about, like missions and evangelism and generous giving. I mean, every, every way. All the, all the day long, you should be walking out the righteous vision of the law. Mercy towards your kids. Grace and love towards your neighbors. Treating your money as a resource that was given to you to steward and invest in the coming kingdom. Right? These are day-to-day decisions. Does that make sense? I could just keep going. Do you want me to talk for another 20 minutes about this? I'm, I'm, I'm having a great time. All right. Finally, it's time to fulfill the righteous vision of the law of Christ. Now, this is pretty redundant. I want to change the way we think as a church. Okay? I want to change the way we think as a church. I want our church to begin to gather together and ask questions about how to fulfill the righteous vision of Christ. I want to corral our efforts. I want to corral our giftings. I want to corral our wisdom. Because we have been set free and we have been empowered to live lives that should change our neighborhood. Right? We're trying to do this. If you were in members meeting a couple weeks ago, we, we pled with the Lord to give us the wisdom and the know-how and the, and the energy to work according to his purpose in seeing the gospel proclaimed here and in caring for one another and bearing one another's burdens. And in, if you're equipped rising into greater displays of service and responsibility in the church, I don't want to waste our days. I don't. We only have so many days left. So this is a corporate application point, not an individual application point. Individually, you should be fulfilling the righteous vision of the law. But corporately, our display of the righteous vision of the law, our display of of righteousness and love and mercy and grace, ushered, in works of service, ushered in works of proclamation, ushered in works of generosity, should be felt by our neighborhood and by our city and by the nations. Okay. Okay, let's pray. You... I I don't, Lord, I don't even have to ask you to do something. I don't think, because you've already done that thing. Um, You've already bought your people. You've already set them free from their sin, from slavery to sin. You have sent your spirit to your people. And you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And Lord, I plead with you to will and to work in our hearts according to your purpose. Work in us to will and to work according to your purpose. In Christ's name, amen.